Take your Bibles, go to the book of Colossians. I'm not going to have you stand together. We've already stood and read together. Um, but I am going to read a few of the verses again to us in uh, reference to our text this morning. And uh, looking forward to continuing in our, our course through um, the book of Colossians. Uh, however slowly that course takes us, uh, we'll walk through this uh, a few verses at a time each Sunday. And uh, if you're there in Colossians chapter number 1, I'm going to read the first three verses for us. Again, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. I love that introduction. Paul says, every time I pray for you, I give thanks for you. He said, I always give thanks to God when I pray for you. How many of you can think of somebody that you pray for that you don't give thanks for? Anybody got a family member like that? A friend like that? I pray for you, but I'm not giving thanks for you. Um, Paul looks in a very familial way, a family-heartedness, big-heartedness, saying, when I, thank, when I pray for you, I thank God for you. Now, it's important to remember, these are people you've never met. These are people he had not seen face-to-face and yet there's a heart of thanksgiving that Paul has for this group of people. And so let's pray together, and we'll ask the Lord to give us insight into the text this morning. Father, we continue our service this morning in prayer, uh, knowing that ultimately, unless you do a work in us, that all of our efforts are in vain. Uh, well, we ask you, Father, that you would take uh, the scales from our eyes this morning, help us to see the Word of God for what it is. Lord, help us to see the truth of Scripture and then be able to apply it to our lives. Father, I pray that you would work with your word and give life to us. And Lord, just as we see in the scripture that it is the word of God that brings life, or may that be the case this morning to this group of dear people. In the precious name of Jesus, we ask all these things. Amen. So we've looked in the danger of Colossae, the church at Colossae, this group of people, and it's interesting also that Paul does not address the church, but he addresses the saints and faithful brothers, uh, and he doesn't use the term church here. But the danger was this elitism that was taking place. Uh, we, we understand that eventually it became what is known as Gnosticism, and the word, the root word of that is knowledge or gnosis, and the idea is this elite knowledge of an elite way to get above everyone else. And that through a certain amount of self-depriving and, and going alone and fasting and, and even celebrating certain holy days would bring us into an awareness of knowledge and an awakening that no one else has had. And only certain people could find that path and they needed these other leaders to lead them down that path. And Paul is coming in very quickly and saying, no, everything we have, everything we need and everyone who is in Christ has all things in Christ. That Christ is the source and he is the substance of all that we need. And he is going to lift up the school of Christ to us over the next several weeks and months. Now, you know, I think of um, when we walk through the Christian life, we walk through the present journey. We, we live it in real time in a real world where there's heartaches and burdens and frustrations that hit us every day. 
Many of you have gone through a week this week that's been heavy for you. And you've not even shared it to any, with anyone around you yet. And yet we, when we're walking through this life, I think it's important that we remember some basic principles. When my, my son was young, and even my daughters as well, especially Savannah and TJ, uh, they like to climb on everything. How many of you had kids that like to climb? Yeah, just everywhere, okay. Uh, Miss Naomi raised her hand, Braden's a climber. And uh, he likes to climb on everything. And, and I, I remember one time in particular, we had had him down in a playpen, and he was sitting next to the crib that his niece was in. And we were visiting my brother and, and his little niece, just a little infant laying up in the crib. He's down in the playpen, and she started crying. And he said, my brother said, just let her cry for a minute. She'll be okay. Well, then she stopped, and so we went in to check on what had happened. TJ had climbed out of the playpen, up into the crib, and was sitting there giving her her pacifier. And just, here you go, take this, you know. And uh, he'd climb on anything. And, you know, of course, I'd be working outside, going up on ladders and climbing up things. And I would say, all right, but if you're going to climb, because, I mean, one of the two things you can do is say, don't climb anything, right? Good luck with that. Uh, or you can teach them how to climb and when it's safe to climb. And one of the things we would say all over and over again, three points of contact. Three points of contact. When you're climbing something, keep three points of contact. Two feet, one hand, two hands, one foot. Always three points of contact. The chin doesn't count, all right? And three points of contact on that ladder at all the time. And uh, he would start up a ladder, and I'd be working, uh, and uh, we'd have the ladder up, and he'd say, Dad, can I climb the ladder? I'm like, yeah, you can climb the ladder. What do you got to remember? Three points of contact. And he would, he would say it, and he would go up the ladder. And uh, we do that all the time. Let me just say, Christians, as we go through this world, we need three points of contact all the time. And what do I mean by that? I think we have to always remember what we were. Never forget the pit you were digged from. Never forget that you were a sinner without God and without hope. And that there was no hope without the next point of contact, and that is what Christ has done. That he has died, was buried, and rose again and gives us the victory. And we hold on to the reality of what we were, we remember what Christ has done, and then we keep our eyes on the hope that is coming. Understanding that this world is going somewhere, that there is a kingdom that is coming, and we keep those three points of contact in place all the time as we go through this world, and it gives us a stability. Now Paul is writing to the church here at Colossae, or to the saints at Colossae, He's reminding them over and over of who Christ is throughout this book. It's constantly on Paul's lips. There's never a time where we can point a place in this scripture where he's not telling us something about the Lord Jesus Christ. He's magnifying him everywhere we go, and, and everything that he's talking about is about Christ. Constantly on Paul's lips, we see in 1-3, we find that Christ is... He is the Father, uh, the Father of, uh, of Christ is God, and He is the beloved Son of God in verses, uh, verse 13. and 125, He is the Word of God. In verse 2, we see Christ is the mystery of God. In verse 13, we see Christ, or God raised Christ from the dead. In 3, 1, we see Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. Verses 3, we see Him, that all things were hidden with Christ in God. Verse 17 of chapter 3, we give thanks 
through Christ to God. In verse, four, uh, verse 3 and 11 of chapter 4, we see the kingdom of God and the kingdom of his son. And both of these things are one and the same. That both the kingdom of God and the kingdom of son. And all of this is showing the relationship between the father and the son. And he keeps going back and forth between this relationship the entire book. And what we conclude, and we see a concluding statement in 2 and 9 when he says, In him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. That Jesus is not just the Son of God, he is very God. And when we say Son, we don't mean a derivative of, we mean one in nature with the Father. That Jesus is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So then we come to our verse this morning in verse number two. Now, it is not my intention just to preach one verse a Sunday. It's just where we've been the last two Sundays, all right? My intention is to gather more than just one verse. But this Sunday, we're going to be in verse 2. Now, here's what he says. He opens up with these words. To the saints. Paul has already addressed who he is, that he's an apostle of Christ Jesus, that he is there by the will of God, that Timothy is laboring with him. And now he opens and he says, to the saints. To the saints. What is the word saints? Now, this word saints, we, we would use it broadly and probably in our culture today. Um, it's, it's not understood to be a term that is accessible to most people. Uh, how many of you had somebody in your life and you would have said the statement about them? Man, she is such a saint. We would say that more about she's than he's probably. Um, but the fact is we would say, well, she was such a saint. All right? Um, and what we mean by that is they were a person that had a great impact, they had a sweet spirit, they had a great demeanor, uh, they would do anything for you, they were just a saintly person. And the, the Catholic Church has come along and set certain people around and given very detailed parameters for how someone becomes a saint, and they get lifted up to this place. Paul is not going at that at all in that manner. As a matter of fact, what he's saying is that everyone who is in Christ, everyone who is a believer, is a saint. And so you can look at your wife this afternoon and say, don't give me a hard time, I'm a saint, all right? Um, now, it doesn't mean we always behave that way, but that is our position. We are saints. We are set apart. The word saint literally means holy or set apart. This word is used by Paul in all of his epistles to apply to all believers in all places, we are holy by our position, not by our practice. Now, that, that needs something to settle in just for a moment, because I think often in the Christian world, and in my own life particularly, I have had times where I thought the means by which you become holy is what you do. If you do these things, you will be holy. And so we look at holy people, quote unquote, and we say, well, look at these holy people. They do these things, and they don't do these things. So if I do those things and I don't do these things, I'll be holy. And that's not the case at all. The fact is, holiness is about whose you are, not what you do. Who do you belong to? Who do I belong to? I have been set apart in Christ. I have been made holy in him. Now, there is practical holiness, but this text is speaking of what Christ has done for us. And we can talk later on. As a matter of fact, in chapter 3 and verse 17, and I got this verse right in the second hour for those of you who heard the first one. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And then chapter number 1, verses 9 and 10, and so from the day we heard... 
We have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. What? Why? So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And so what are we seeing here is that holiness is what I've been set apart in in Christ. He has called me holy, he has set me in his son, and I am set apart and holy. And so then holy living comes out of holy being. Holy living doesn't make me holy, but being holy produces holy living. Now that is so important that we get that order straight, because I believe this, if we are living in a way because we want to measure up, it is going to be exhausting because we always have to measure up. And the problem with that is that it, this mentality is, is so endless. There's no ending to this. But understanding that Christ has taken me out of this kingdom and transferred me into his kingdom. And now I am positionally holy in Christ and he is doing a work in me to make me more like his son. He is conforming me to his image. See, we are working out our holiness as we walk it out every day. But it is not the walking it out that makes me holy. I'm positionally holy in Christ. I've been set apart for him. So he comes to this body of believers and he says, you're holy. You were set apart. You were saints. Now he says, now, because of this is who you are, let's walk this out in a way that is demonstrated of what we've been given in Christ. You see, we are in this world, but we belong to another world. I want you to go with me to John chapter number 13, and I want you to see what Jesus, what is said of our Lord in this text here. But in John chapter number 13, our Lord is at the Last Supper, and he's just about to wash the feet of the apostles. And I want to give you this statement, and then I want to read the text, and we'll come back to the statement. Our standing will always inform our ministry. Our position, where do we stand? What right do I have to call myself holy? It is not because of what I've done, but what Christ has done. What he has completed that I can say to you this morning that I am holy, that I am set apart for a task. Our standing will always inform our ministry when we know who we are and whose we are, we can minister as we should. Now, when we know who we are, and whose we are, we can minister as we should. Now look what happened with Jesus here. I'm going to begin reading in verse number two. During the supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Now listen to this about Jesus. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, laid aside his outer garment, taking a towel, he tied it around his waist, then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. What do we see, Jesus? We see the Lord of the universe humbling himself in service. And what was he serving from? He was not serving to be something. He was serving because he was something. He knew who he belonged to. He knew where he came from. He knew where he was going, and therefore he served from that. And when you and I are made new creatures in Christ, we serve from that identity, not for that identity. My wife and I bought a house. We just got an email. I got an email earlier this week. It said, um, 
uh, the anniversary of your mortgage, can we help you with anything? And they, they're soliciting to me to check on the, the financing and all that again. And, and they said, it's the third year of having the house. We've had the house for three years. And Susie saw the house, and we were actually driving around the other day, and she was telling me about when she first saw it on Zillow, and we're like, hey, look at this. And she's like, I just loved it. I knew at the moment I saw it, this is the one I wanted to get. And I'm very thankful for the home we live in. Um, we got the house, and immediately we had to do work to it. Immediately. All of you have moved into a house, you know what I'm talking about. You go in, and you're painting, you're moving things around, you're cleaning things up, you're adjusting this, you're tearing out things. And it's a constant process there, and you first get it, and you're going at it. Now, that house was ours the day we signed the papers on it. On that day, we signed the papers, it became ours. But here's the thing, since that day, we've been doing things to change that house. And we continue to change that house. Pray for me, men. I think the house is great. I don't think we need to do another thing to it myself. But my wife has a constant list of things that she would like to do. And my wife is an idea person anyway. And so we'll, we'll sit in the living room. We'll get the thing finished where we want it for that time. And with the project's done, you know. I've got the tools put away, just got the dust cleaned up. And we're sitting down, my hands are washed. And I'm like, ah. Oh. And you're like, you know what we should do? I'm like, we should stop talking right now is what we should do. Because I don't want to hear another idea right now. I'm done. Uh, the fact is, it's a constant progress process of changing. I will tell you this, just for the sake of give, not giving my wife too hard a time. If it were not for her, I would be a very boring individual, all right? Uh, but she keeps life exciting for me. Um, the fact is, the house is not going to be ours one day. It is ours. You see, the day we signed the papers, it was set apart for the Montgomery family. But ever since then, it's been being conformed to the Montgomery family. It's being transformed into what fits our family. And so the living rooms are set up the way we want them set up. The bedrooms are set up the way we want them set up. The walls are painted the way she wants them painted. The reality is it's conformed to us. And the longer we live in it, the more it will conform to us. And by the way, the same thing happened. The day you accepted Christ as your Savior, the title deed changed. You became his. You became a part of a holy race, a set-apart people, sanctified, a peculiar people. But the longer he lives in us, the more we are conformed to him. The longer he abides in us, the more we start looking like him and talking like him. And so he walks to this group of people who he's never met. And on the confidence of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, he says to the saints. To the saints. Now he moves from this word to faithful brethren. Now this is not a distinction of two different groups, but it's the dis two distinctions of the same group. He's saying this is the saints and faithful brethren who are one people that are set apart. Now, this is so important to remember what Paul is, who Paul is writing to. He's writing to Gentiles. These are people that he would not have spoken to or countenanced before he became a believer. And now Paul is writing to a group of Gentiles, and he says, and the faithful brethren. 
part of the family, those that are on the inside now, my brothers. And Paul has this heart connection, this family unit. We saw last week, he's never yet seen these people face to face. He's met a few of the people that minister there, but he's never been to Colossae and never sat there in their midst. And yet he's writing to them saying, hey, you're a faithful brethren. You're, you're a part of the heart connection that I have. And in chapter 2 of Colossians, we saw it again last week, how Paul says, I agonize for you. You haven't seen my face. And he said, I'm agonizing over the process that you would understand this and you would be seated in Christ and settled in him. And Paul has a heart connection with people he's never yet met. There's a kindred spirit with people that we've never met. Have you ever been in that situation where you meet somebody and just in a few moments you know they're a believer? Just in a few moments of talking with them, you know that person knows the Lord Jesus. And you make that connection, and you have that conversation, and it's somebody that you never knew, and yet we're a part of the same family. And I, I remember a time in particular, I was loading a truck uh, years ago now, and I, just a big, long truck. The guy backed up, did the normal of the truck. You know, he came out, threw the clipboard inside. Here you go. You know, we got, you know, got 1,500 pieces today, and he throws it in, and I get the box, start checking things off. We unload. We work for two hours, maybe saying 15 words between each other. And after the two hours of unloading the truck, I step out, sign the invoice, hand it back to him, and just chatting just a little bit. And I just looked at him and I said, you're a believer, aren't you? And he goes, yeah, I am. How'd you know? He goes, you know, I thought, I thought the same thing about you when I met you. And it's just interesting. And then we stood there and he was able to share his testimony of how he accepted Christ. And I shared my testimony. And we were able to have a, a, just a brief few minute communion of connecting with somebody we've never known. Why? Because it is not our common interest that connects us, but it is someone who connects us. And Paul says to the saints and faithful brethren, faithfully walking out their position in Christ. So then what joins us together? What connects us it's not ideology. It's not preferences that should join us together. One of the griefs of my heart is that preferences can divide people. Because if preferences divide us, then we're acknowledging that they're stronger than what joins us. Paul is not looking at that. Now, we might read in our text and say, well, it is the church at Colossae, so maybe it's their geographical location that joins them together. And there is some connection by geography here. They were laboring in the same context. They were serving in the same place. And there is an, uh, a, a uniqueness to that. Those of you from different parts of the country or maybe have a heritage in other parts of the world and you meet somebody from that part of the world and there's an immediate connection because of geography. But it's not the lasting connection that Paul is describing here because Paul didn't share that connection. He was not from Colossae. He had never been there. So it's not the fact that they had a geographical connection. Now, let me say this. There's great value and commitment to the local expression of the church. And thank God for the local assembly that labors together in the community that God placed it in. And there's a commitment to it to join together to do the work of Christ. But it is not at Colossae that joined them together. But rather it was in Christ that joined them together. See, this is the, the, the saints and faithful brethren in Christ. In Christ, he binds us together. In Christ, we are sealed together. Now, here's the thing I want you to see about in Christ. First off, when we say you are in Christ, what does that mean to you individually? And then how does that apply to us corporately that we are in Christ? 
in Christ. What does it mean to be in Christ? Well, we could walk through many passages of Scripture, but here we're saying, in general here, we're saying that in Christ, I am in his life. That I, Mike Montgomery, am in the life of Christ. You, this morning, if you were in Christ, you were in the life of Christ. That when the records of heaven are open and we see your record, we will see the righteous life of Christ applied to your account. That you are hidden in the life of Christ. His righteousness is applied to your account. Not only are we in his life, but we're in his death. I am crucified with Christ, Paul says. I died with Christ, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And so I am in Christ in his life. I am in Christ in his death. I am in Christ in his resurrection. So when the law comes looking and says, when did you die? I died at the cross. When did you rise again? I rose in Christ. Because he's the first fruits of the resurrection. We see that later on in this book here. And we see that Christ is the one that I'm hidden in. That everything about me is wrapped up in who Christ is. Not only do I have his life, his death, his resurrection, but this morning I have his reward. I get to partake in the reward that Christ has been given. Christ merited everything that you and I needed. He was righteous. He was in all points tempted, yet without sin. He was obedient to the Father. He died for our sins. And you understand this morning, it is not enough for Christ simply to pay for our sins. Because if all he did was pay for your sins, then you would be at a net zero. He needed to make you holy. And the only way he could do that is by imputing his righteousness on your account. And so no longer have my, not only have my sins been canceled, but his righteousness has been placed on my account. And now in Christ, I am a new creature. I am holy. I am set apart. I am no longer of the former family that I was a part of. You see, when I was born, I was born into the line and lineage of Adam. And Adam had lost his inheritance. He had no demands on anything that God offers because he was a sinner. And, he, and I inherited that sin nature from him. But when I was transferred, Paul uses this word later on. We read it earlier. When I was transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son, now I'm placed in Christ. And no longer do I have the debt of Adam. I have the reward of Christ. He is mine and I am his and everything that he has is mine. And here's the thing. Everything that I am benefiting from Christ is from his inheritance. What is owed to him is given to me and blessed me with it. Look what he says here. Christ is our elder brother. Look what in verse number two he says this to the faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Grace to you in peace from God our father. So whose father is God? He's our father. Look at verse number three. Here's what he says in verse number three. We always thank God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So whose father is God? The father of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's our father, and he's the father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is our elder brother. He's the firstborn from the dead. He is the resurrected Lord. We're going to see that picture. It is I want to stop and go get my notes for that sermon. It's really good. We're going to get there. He's the firstborn. He has the authority to give us his inheritance, and in Christ we have all that we've been given in him. And by the way, we don't need more than Christ. 
And these would come along and tell the church at Colossae, if you really want to get to this elite knowledge, then you need Christ and. And if you need Christ and, you don't have Christ anymore. We don't need something more than him. Christ is all I need. Christ is all I need. So God the Father. Now, Luke 15, 11 through 32, you don't have to turn there if you don't want to, but you're familiar with the story already. And I love the picture of this, of what it means to be in Christ and what Christ has done for us. Remember we had Adam who sinned and lost his inheritance. Christ who obeyed and retained his inheritance. When we go to this story in Luke, in Luke 15, we see the account of the prodigal son. Remember the prodigal son took his inheritance and he went into a far country and he wasted it with riotous living and he, he spoiled it all. And then when he comes back, the, the son that stayed home did not waste his inheritance, but he did not have the heart of the father and would not, did not rejoice in the son coming back. As a matter of fact, he didn't want the son to return. And he describes how, in my opinion, how Israel had failed to be the elder brother that it should have been. That they had come up short in being the elder brother. And what he's saying is we needed a better elder brother. Now think about this for a second. The coin was lost in this chapter and somebody went looking for it. The sheep was lost in this chapter and somebody went looking for it. But nobody goes looking for the son. Why? The elder brother had not come yet. But the elder brother condescended from heaven, came to where we were, went down to the pig pen. He didn't stay up in his palace and reserving his inheritance for himself, but he brought himself down to where we were and called us back to the father, and now he spoils his inheritance for us. He bestows it on us. We are in Christ. Everything that Christ has merited is ours. In Christ, Ephesians gives us a little window into this. It's really the theme of the first three chapters of Ephesians. Here's what he says. In Christ, we have all spiritual blessings. We are chosen in Christ. We are accepted in him. We have redemption and forgiveness in Christ. We have obtained an inheritance in Christ. We believe in Christ alone. We are resurrected in Christ. We are created in Christ. We are built up in Christ. That in Christ, we have all things. So Colossians says this to the saints. And faithful brethren in Christ at Colossae. That little phrase, in Christ at Colossae, we put them together. And what do we see? We see a beautiful reminder of the two spheres of Christian life, the heavenly and the earthly. We are in Christ at Shelby Township. We are in Christ at your workplace We're in Christ with your family. We're in Christ with the nasty now and now that we live through on a daily basis. And yet we are in Christ. And it gives both hope and reality that though this world doesn't reflect all that we want it to reflect, and it's not giving honor and glory to God that we are in Christ and we have hope that one day this world will be transformed. That we are in Christ. It talks about the safety that we have in Christ in the midst of the storm. I think we could almost take the Old Testament accounts and say we are in the ark at the flood. But I'm in the ark. And in the ark I find safety and I find shelter. Though the storm rages on the outside, I'm in the ark. I'm in the house 
and the blood has been applied, but the death angel is coming by. What is my safety? My safety is that I'm in the house, and the blood is on the doorpost. And you and I are in the midst of the storm of the present world, and we are in Christ, and there is safety in Christ. There is nothing that is going to take our hope away from us. We are secure in him. So this is what it means for us to be in Christ individually. Then how do we apply that corporately? Here's the thing. If we believe this is true about ourselves, that we are in Christ, then what right do we hold resentment or unforgiveness or uncharitable hearts toward anyone else who is in Christ by the same means? The reality of my redemption ought to join me to the people who are next to me. You see this, if Christ is what joins us and binds us together, then only two things could separate that. Something more powerful than the work he's done. Is there anything more powerful than the work of redemption? What else could separate us? Let me say this, something more dear to us than the work he's done. And I think that is more likely what separates us than not. Something that we value more than we value the work of Christ. Something that takes the place of redemption. And oftentimes, it's our own efforts, it's our own self-righteousness that we hold more dear than we hold the work of Christ. So they were in Christ at Colossae. And he concludes with grace and peace to you. Grace and peace to you. This is a Christian blend of a Hebrew and Greek greeting that Paul is forming and he uses it often. He's going to use this over and over again, but if you get a good recipe, why change it? And he says, here's the deal. I'm going to take the word grace, which at that point it was a form of the word grace that only meant greeting or hope you were well, and now it's changed to unmerited favor. And grace, we understand, is the means by which you and I are in Christ today because the only way we can come in is by grace, through faith. We can't come any other way. And then peace is the Hebrew side of this, which is the word shalom. And it would come from that idea, the idea of this peace is not just the absence of trouble, but a well-being that springs from the very presence of God. That we understand that God is in control, and peace is the fruit of being in Christ. That we are in Christ by grace, and peace is the result of that. And Paul says, to you, I want this to come. Paul defines ministry as being a conduit of grace that produces peace in the life of people. A conduit of grace that produces peace. So we, it's from God. He's the source of it, not us. You're not the source of grace. You're not the source of peace. We are conduits. We say it over and over again. We're one beggar telling another beggar where they found bread. That's what we are. And so we are taking grace that others may have peace. So then, grace and peace to you. Archaeologists tell us that in the catacombs in Rome, where many Christian martyrs and families that were running hiding would be buried in those catacombs, that often on the tombs that no name was inscribed, but there'd be this inscription on the tomb, in Christo, in in Posse. The idea here is in Christ, in peace. And that was all that was written on the tomb. In Christ, in peace. And this morning, if we are in Christ, we can have peace. Only in Christ 
can we have peace? You see, grace must always be the foundation of our peace, and grace is only found in Christ. The tragedy of our modern age is the constant search for personal peace apart from the enabling grace of God. Because everyone wants peace, but Christ is the only source. And so in Christ, in peace. So, Paul concludes his greeting, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Let's pray together. Father, we ask you to add your blessing to what has been said this morning. Holy Spirit of God, I pray that you would stir our hearts and our minds. Lord, I pray that you would allow it to sit heavy on our minds and hearts. Lord, I pray that you would do a work in us and through us. We'll praise you for what you're doing already. Let's stand to our feet at this time and we'll sing together.